Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to episode two of Ordinary Courage uh, with your host, myself, uh, Venetia Brielt. I'm I'm your I'm your speaker today. I'm your um, I'm I'm the one and only today. And so I'm just really, uh, just really excited to be here and nervous. I'm having some anxiety, uh, truth be told. And I, I, I think first of all, I just really wanted to thank everyone, uh, that has so far downloaded, um, off of Spotify and Apple and listened uh, to our first episode that launched last week on July 29th. If you haven't had a chance to check out that episode, I, I would really encourage you to um, go and download that first episode and, and listen to it. I interviewed my daughters, uh, both my girls in that episode, uh, Carissa and Eden. And it's a pretty uh, powerful episode of... Uh, their story, their journey, and and their courage, uh, their everyday ordinary courage, and uh, which is actually pretty extraordinary. If you if you get a chance to go and listen to their story, um, it's funny how you know the we don't we don't always pay attention to the things that we do every day and how they are. Uh, in all reality, they are acts of courage, and it leads to something so much bigger than than what it can even look like or feel like it at the at the time in the moment. And so, after listening uh, to that first episode, that first podcast, I think you would probably agree with me that both their stories are pretty pretty extraordinary. And so, I just wanted to. Um, just thank everyone, um, and just uh, thanks for being here with me today. And I'm just going to share a little bit uh, my own story, my own journey, and uh, kind of how this has all come about. And so, so I'm just going to jump right in. And uh, so, yeah, my name is Venetia, and um, I have uh, four kids. I'm also a grandmother. Uh, to five. Um, my kids, I never actually cared about being called grandma. I didn't care what, what my grandbabies called me. And uh, they ended up, it was my oldest grandson, actually, Boaz, that came up with the name Mudgy. And uh, so it's kind of stuck. And so now I'm, uh, I'm just known as Mudgy. And uh, so, yeah, I... Um, Oh, let me see. I uh, I was uh, born in BC, but we mostly grew up. Uh, I grew up way up north in uh, Fort St. John, Dawson Creek, BC. And uh, I am the oldest child. I'm the oldest of three. Um, I grew up in a dysfunctional home, uh, very alcoholic home, very dysfunctional home. Um, and, uh, both, both my parents, uh, were alcoholics. I think I would like to just, uh, pause for a minute, uh, before I jump into my story. And, uh, I, I would like to just take a moment, uh, to quickly pray. And 
I, I may end up doing this on every podcast <laughs> just because uh, it helps to center me and it helps to clear my head. And it's just, um, it's just a part of my life. And so, um, yeah, so I'm just going to quickly pray. So Heavenly Father, I just thank you, Lord, for being here with me right now, for being with me always, for always being with me. And um, I just uh, turn this time over to you. I turn this podcast over to you, just like I turn my life over to you every day. And um, I just uh, pray that you will help me to share my story with dignity, grace, and courage. And I just thank you for for being here today. And uh, I thank you for just giving me the strength and the faith and the perseverance um, to be in this moment, to be here. And so I just, uh, yeah, just turn this time over to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so yeah, I was, uh, some of my first memories, I'm going to, I'll try to get through this as, as, um, quick as I can. It's, it can be a little bit of a long story. And so, um, I'll just try to jump, not jump through it, but just give you the bare bones. I, I just, it's really important for me to, in launching this podcast and in doing this, that we, I, I want you guys to get to know me. I want you to have an understanding of why this podcast and, um, yeah, why, why even just even for some of these deeper topics and, uh, why, why I believe that they're so important. And so, yeah, I was, uh, raised up North. I was born in BC, Kamloops, BC, but I mostly grew up up North in, uh, Fort St. John, Dawson Creek, BC. And so, uh, some of my first memories as a child, I remember being about two or three um, also I should probably say too, uh, sorry, um, that, um, there's, this is going to be some, some heavier content. Uh, so just, I just want to give a bit of a warning, content warning, um, for some of the stuff that I'm going to be talking about. So, uh, just abuse and things like that. So just, uh, please be aware of that as you're listening. Yeah, so some of my first memories um, were of domestic violence. Uh, I remember being about two, three years old and, uh, you know, my mom being beaten. Um, Both my parents were alcoholics and so my dad would have um, alcoholic rages and uh, it would just end in they, they were, it was just violence. There was violence. And, um, and so we, as kids, I I remember fleeing our house a lot in the middle of the night, uh, because my dad was coming home and my mom was terrified. And so, yeah, I remember having to leave our house in the middle of the night, uh, with my younger brother. Um, and so those were some of my literally like some of my very first memories as a child are, are of those. And, and so I know that, uh, 
both my parents ended up sobering up, I think, when I was around five or so. And so we, I, re- I remember clearly going to AA meetings um, as a child with my parents and uh, kind of growing up in just in in that atmosphere, in that environment. Um, but our, our home life didn't. Uh, my parents sobered up, but the uh, the the abuse still continued. The fighting still continued. Um, so yeah, I, I mean there was the there there was the absence of alcohol, but there was still all of the behaviors. I guess you could say of of alcoholism. There were still all the isms present. Uh, in our home growing up. And so, you know, the fighting um, was constant. It was every day, uh, my parents fighting. And so it just was, it was a lot of that for me growing up. Um, I remember uh, I, I was seven years old the first time I was sexually molested. And so from about the time I was seven till I was 12, um, I was repeatedly sexually molested by several members uh, on my dad's side of the family. So uncles, uh, cousins. I remember even one time um, I used to go sometimes with my dad to the rink. My dad played hockey. And, uh, and uh, so I used to go sometimes with him to the rink to watch. And just to try to, you know, be close. I wanted, I really was longing for a relationship with my father. And, and so I remember this one time in particular, I'm not, I I don't know exactly how old I was. I want to say I was probably maybe eight or nine around there. And while everyone was, all the guys, it was like a men's rec league. And uh, while everyone was in the, uh, change room after the the game. Uh, I was by myself. Uh, these games used to happen kind of late at night. It was, you know, almost, you know, like the 10 o'clock at night, uh, kind of older men's rec league. And so, uh, so it was at the rink. So I, I was like one of the only people there. And so my dad would just have me wait, uh, kind of like in the bleachers and for him to come out after the game. And so this one particular night, the guy that was running uh, this Zamboni uh, that would clean the ice, he asked me if I wanted to come and ride the machine with him while he cleaned the ice. And and I, I totally was thought that was so awesome. And so I was like, yeah, that would be great. And so I jumped on that machine with him and we cleaned the ice and then we went back down into the uh, kind of like the garage of the arena where he would park the machine. And I remember stand, uh, he had helped me to get off the machine and things like that. And I remember standing there and he, he just molested me. He, I, I remember just freezing and I being like almost like paralyzed and I couldn't move. He had come in from behind me and had undone my pants and pulled my pants down and put his hand into my pants. And I remember, yeah, just freezing. I couldn't, 
I couldn't move. I couldn't say anything. I couldn't do anything. I just stood there frozen. And when he was done, I, I don't even totally remember if I fixed my pants or if he fixed my pants. But I just remember going back out and finishing to wait for my dad. And that was kind of like, that was almost like every sexual abusive encounter I had. I, I froze. I just froze. And I never said anything, um, but I hadn't at this point in my life said anything about any of the other abuse either. I just didn't, I didn't feel safe. I, our home life was so traumatic and there had already, there was so much abuse. It just seemed, I think for me as a child, it just seemed so normal Things were so chaotic and violent and abusive. This just seemed, this just was a part of it. It just almost became, this was my life. Like, this is just, this is, this is life growing up. This is what it's like. And so I never said anything about that. And, and then the abuse continued just with other family members and things like that. And then I remember finally when I was uh, 12 years old, um, one of my uncles had taken me for um, a ride, and uh, same thing. Every every time I was abused, I just froze. But this one particular time, I don't I don't know why. This time, I decided to say something. I I don't know, but I decided to say something this time when I I, came, I got back. Both my parents. Um, were at my nanny's house and that's, I had been staying with her for a little bit. And so that after this one episode or incident of being sexually molested, I had come back and I told my mom and I remember my mom was getting ready in the bathroom and I had gone in there. And so I was 12 years old and I remember I wanting to tell her, but I remember feeling like I was going to burst out laughing and I know now, and I've obviously known for a long time that it was just total trauma and nerves and, you know, post-traumatic stress and all of that. But I didn't understand that then. I just, I didn't understand what was wrong with me that I felt like I was going to bust out laughing or burst out laughing for something so serious. And I remember feeling terrified that if I laugh, my mom is going to think I'm lying. She's just going to think I'm telling lies. And so I was able to get out the information uh, to my mom and told her. And long story short, um, nothing really came out of it. My dad ended up confronting my uncle at that time. He just said, no, he never did anything that I was, you know, lying. And it was just kind of dropped. It just nothing so for me at that time, it really just solidified those messages that you, you just don't matter and no, no one, no one is going to believe you. You're not believable. You don't matter. And so those were, those were the kind of messages, um, that I grew up with. And then, 
And then, yeah, so eventually I ended up leaving my home. Um, I ended up in foster care at 12. Uh, you know, I ran away in foster care, ended up living with my grandfather. I was, I was happy to stay there living with my grandfather. So I lived with him for a while, like on my mom's side. Um, but just, yeah, I, I remember being suicidal, uh, at nine, 10 years of age, I was, uh, started, ha- you know, having suicidal ideation, um, used to disassociate a lot. I didn't understand any of these concepts or anything like this at all. Uh, growing up, I just, uh, this all just became such normal behavior for me. Uh, my mom became schizophrenic. Uh, she ended up getting really sick. Uh, that probably started to happen when I was about nine, um, that my mom started to get display, uh, symptoms of schizophrenia. And so I believe by the time uh, I was 11, she was diagnosed with schizophrenia. But for a while, we didn't know what was wrong with my mom. And so that ended up, you know, being pretty traumatic uh, for my brother and I, uh, as we, like, we were exposed to a lot of her episodes and the hallucinations and delusions and things like that. And so it wasn't always even safe to be at home with my mom uh, as as she was kind of getting sicker and sicker. And so eventually my mom uh, was taken to a mental institution in Vancouver, B.C., uh, w- when we lived at Dawson Creek at the time. And so our, our family, my whole family, just really dissolved uh, over time. It just... Um, yeah, was it was just, it's just really sad. Like it, when I when I look back on it now, it's just sad. I have a lot of um, compassion and empathy um, for my parents. I I um, to me, it's just it's sad. It's really sad. I, I think about where we are today in our society and, you know, things have gotten better when it comes to talking about addiction and mental health and family trauma and things like that. But back then growing up, you didn't talk about that stuff. And I know even for my parents trying to be parents, I know both of my parents come from their own family stories of violence, abuse, neglect, abandonment, addiction, like, and I know that they did the best that they could even too, like even with, you know, my brother and I, and then, uh, I have, I also have a younger sister, um, eight years younger than me. And so I know that they did the best they could with us, but we didn't, you didn't talk about these things. Like, you didn't talk about child abuse. You didn't talk about domestic violence. So they didn't, they tried, they just kept a lid on it. And we were told to keep a lid on it too. Like, you know, whatever happens in the home stays in the home. And you just, that, that was how we lived. And so, yeah, I just, I don't, um, I don't hold any, ill feelings at all towards my parents and I love them both 
very much and and just really pray for healing in their own lives and in their own journeys and yeah and so i i know for me it just it kind of went from there and you know with with my so my mom ended up sick she's in a mental institution in vancouver and that was kind of that was it with my mom for for a while um eventually when i was 16 i would go and get my mom and end up um living with her uh moving in with her and just trying to i guess care for her and just support her the best i could um but i would you know bounce around in foster care for a while um, from the time I was 12 and then, like I mentioned, eventually live with my grandfather. That whole time for me was still kind of, um, chaotic. It was, um, I started drinking myself at the age of 12. Um, my own addiction kind of, you know, took off fairly quick at that time too. And so, yeah, so I just, I ended up meeting my first husband at 16. There, there's so much content to try to fit in here. I I apologize if I'm kind of jumping around all over the place. But uh, yeah, so I met my first husband at 16, um, would end up marrying him at 18. I um, my drinking just really progressed during that time. I ended up in AA at 18. I had just turned 18 years of age. Um, I think I had turned 18, and then two days later, two or three days later, I went to my first AA meeting um, and uh, was just really... It was kind of funny because when I think back to that experience, I've shared this story before too, where, um, this is, so you got to think this is a long time ago. Like I, I'm 48 years old now. And so this was when I was 18. And so back then you didn't go to AA at 18. Um, for any of you that are aware of, you know, the 12 step programs and, and stuff like that. I mean, it was usually the, the older generation that were, um, in AA, it was when you had lost everything and stuff like that. So I, I, re- I remember my first meeting, I think my mom had actually gone with me to my first AA meeting and, uh, they, they were going to kick me out. Uh, they didn't think I should be there. They were like, what are you doing here? Um, you don't belong here. How can you be an alcoholic? You're only 18. And I remember this one, uh, old timer, he was an old timer in every sense of the word. Um, and he, he vouched for me and he, I I remember him just kind of slamming his hand down on the table and he was like, I vote she stays. So she stays. And he clearly seemed to, um, he was very well respected in that place. His name was Ray. And, uh, he, he was like a grandfather like a father and a grandfather. And he was that kind of a a gentleman. And, and he, that, that was, that was like a life-saving moment for me because I, I didn't realize how much I needed that program and those people, but I, I needed that program and those people, they became my people. And that became family for me in a way that I had never really known family to be, um, 
going to those meetings, I found acceptance. I found love, uh, understanding, compassion, uh, wisdom, even just even a, a level of understanding, even into my own life, my own alcoholism, why I drank the way I drank. And so it just really opened up the world for me. Um, for the first time probably in my life, I had, uh, going back, uh, I had started counseling when I was 13. One of the, one of the foster moms that I ended up living with, uh, got me into some counseling and stuff for just all of the sexual abuse and things like that. And so, but it wasn't really until I was 18 and had sobered up, uh, that I was really able to grasp some of the counseling that I had been through and stuff like that. And I was able to really start to apply that to my life. I I remember um, when I first started counseling with Judy when I was 13 um, and I I couldn't even talk about uh, the abuse. I couldn't even talk about the sexual abuse. I remember, you know, even learning how to, I had to spell out um, the names for things because I couldn't, I could not get my mouth to say the words. I couldn't get my brain to say the words. Uh, that's how traumatized I was. That was how, I mean, the effects of sexual abuse are, are so far damaging. And, um, I know for me that they were too, you know, it's even talking about this right now. It's, it's, it's hard. It's like, because I'm so far removed from that now. And so even just bringing up some of these memories and remembering back to where I was and, and like, I don't even think about some of this ever anymore unless I'm talking about it. But I remember having to spell out the word penis because I couldn't say it. I could not say that word. I had to spell it out. And even that took weeks of counseling to be able to put each of those letters together and then eventually be able to actually say the whole word in reference to what had happened to me as a child. I just, we, we really, as a society, as a community, we really need to it's just so important. I think that we are, we really need to be aware of how far impacting child sexual abuse has, is on a person, is on our, our children. And so, yeah, so when I, so that was kind of some of the trauma I had to get through. And in even just, you know, being suicidal, uh, I was, you know, I self-harmed a lot. I didn't, there was no name for that back then. Um, I didn't even talk about my self-harm back then. Um, 
but yeah, I, like I had mentioned, um, you know, being suicidal from like nine, 10, but in that, those periods of being suicidal, I was actually self-harming as well. And so, um, just to give an example, like I, I remember going for walks, uh, being like 10 years old and I would go for these walks after dinner with the intent to throw myself in front of a vehicle, uh, to try to kill myself. And, but then I would, you know, say that I would see this vehicle coming up and it would be like a mom and I'd see some kids in there or something. And so I'd let that vehicle go by because I, I didn't want to hurt anyone else. Um, in the process of trying to kill myself, I just wanted to kill myself, but I would kind of qualify these vehicles as they would come up. And, and so just a lot of suicidal ideation. Um, I remember as a child, uh, being, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11, uh, probably even 12 and just a lot of self-harm. I used to hit myself in the head with a hammer, uh, beat my head against the wall, uh, hit myself in the head with sticks. I tried to, you know, commit suicide several times, but I remember this one time I was 12 and I slipped my wrist and ended up biking myself to the hospital. Um, and, you know, going into emergency and I'm, my wrist is badly bleeding and things like that. And, and I remember the doctor just saying to me, like, basically mocking me and, you know, like you, you didn't, you don't even know how to slit your wrist. Like you, you didn't even cut yourself the right way. And I remember feeling so stupid and embarrassed and just shamed. And I, I know, like, I know. I, I just wanted help. Like I, I was just crying out for help, but didn't know how to say the words. And so just all this self-harm, all the thoughts of suicide were all just, just someone help me, someone help me, someone help me. You know, I'm drowning. I'm dying. I felt like I was dying and, um, just drowning and just didn't know how to get out. Didn't know how to ask, ask for help. And so this was all the stuff that I brought with me into my counseling with Judy and who was amazing by the way. And, uh, that woman saved my life there. There, I had a few people along the way that I know that God totally used, um, to pivot my life. And Judy was one of those women that, that God totally used to pivot my life. And I remember I, I counseled with Judy for a long time. It was a few years that I, I went through counseling with Judy. And um, I remember uh, this one time, I think it was probably 15, 16, and still kind of feeling suicidal, kind of suicidal ideation, things like that. And I remember walking into her office and sitting in the chair, and she's sitting across from me. And feeling suicidal, I'm just going to kill myself kind of thing. And and Judy had, she's known me now for a long time because we've been counseling together, you know, once, twice a week for a few years now. And I, she must've got, she must've been sick and tired of listening to me with this suicidal ideation. I'm not sure, but, uh, I remember she just, she, she, um, just came right out and said, you know, if you're going to kill yourself then kill yourself, just do it and get it over with then. 
you either get busy living or get busy dying. And it, I, I remember just it, how it just shocked me. And I knew in that moment that I, I, I didn't really want to die. I wanted to live. I just didn't know how. And so that, that was a, a very pivotal life-changing moment for me. And that, that in that moment, I, I knew, I, yeah, I, I don't want to die. I want to live. And so we were able to get down um, to work. And that, that broke something for me over my life. It broke, I believe, in part, you know, some of that, um, just that spirit of suicide, that it, just that heaviness of wanting to kill myself. It broke it over my life. And so, and then, you know, just fast forward going into AA, you know, that, that was pivotal for me too. Very life-changing. Um, I was able to, once I sobered up, I was really able to do some good work on myself, uh, learn about myself, um, really able to apply a lot of the stuff that I'd learned in counseling. And so, <laughs> the only thing is I, I, I ended up marrying, um, the man that I was with at, uh, 16. And so we got married at 18, both sobered up in AA. And, uh, it was a very traumatic, uh, relationship, uh, very abusive marriage, uh, sexually abusive again. So I endured, um, sexual abuse, uh, in that marriage. And, um, which that's, you know, when it comes to domestic violence in that way, like I wasn't, I wasn't being beaten on the outside physically where you could see what was happening to me. Instead, it was, you know, more, I would say, like emotional abuse and then the sexual abuse. And so you couldn't see that. And so because you couldn't see it, it was, it was easy for me to hide it. It was even easy for me to minimize it and downplay it even for myself. And so... And I also think too, I, I just didn't really, I, I didn't know, like a part of me, I didn't know any better. I didn't know what was happening to me at that time was sexual abuse. Um, I just knew that, like I had, I had no understanding of what real love should be. I had no understanding of you know, what intercourse should look like, what real lovemaking was supposed to look like, what it was supposed to feel like. I had never experienced it. And so, you know, when I, when I would be with my husband or when my husband at that time would be with me and I was literally left bleeding and bruised, um, I, I would have to, more often than not, I would have to wear like a pad after he would have sex with me because I would be bleeding. 
and I could hardly walk. Um, my breasts would be raw, sometimes bleeding. They'd be sore. My hips, the insides of my thighs, like it was horrible. And I, I just didn't, I didn't understand how wrong that was. And I, 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 um, I didn't know how abusive that was. And so I, I stayed in that marriage uh, for a couple of years. I remember, I remember getting pregnant with my first daughter, Carissa. And I, I remember feeling shocked that I could get pregnant um, because of how our sexual experiences were. Um, and I, I knew right away that Carissa was a gift. I knew right away that she was a gift from God and, and having her was another one of those things that became a pivotal, just really life-changing moment for me because once I had Carissa, I, well, it's just a love, it's a love like no other. And I, I remember getting to the point she was a few months old and I, I remember just feeling like I don't want her. I want her to know what real love is. And even though I didn't even really know what that was or what that meant or what that was even supposed to look like, I knew how much I loved her. <clears throat> and I just, I knew that, I just knew I wanted her to feel love even even in the way that I loved her and so I, I ended up leaving that marriage for her now I, re I remember just feeling like even if I don't ever meet anyone ever again I, I just want I don't want her to grow up thinking that this is what marriage is this is what marriage is all about and so and so I left and Carissa was probably, she was just over one, one years old at that time when I left that first marriage. And then uh, her and I were on our own for a while. And then a few years later, or sorry, not a few years later. Um, yeah, because I had met my second husband when Carissa was, uh, I think she was about two and a half. Yeah, two and a half or close to, close to three um, when I met my second husband, Peter. And so Peter and I dated for a couple of years, and then we got married when I was 25. And uh, I had met Peter in church. Um, I had started going back to church and had been still sober uh, during all this time. I um, still had continued uh, my recovery uh, sobriety from 18 years of age. And so I, you know, met, met Peter when I was about 23 or so. And then Peter and I got married when I was 25. And so um, you guys, those of you that would have been listening to episode one, um, have heard a lot of, you know, what, what ended up happening in that marriage. And so I, um, 
Peter and I got married, uh, he totally just um, became like a father to Carissa. And him and I had three more children together, Eden, Elijah, and my other son, Gabriel. And so, I mean, things, things were amazing in the beginning. Things were, you know, I, I was, uh, I was so in love with Peter. I I really truly believed that I would be with Peter and married to him till the day I died. Um, I thought that there, you know, there wasn't anything that we couldn't overcome or get through or, and, uh, I really believed in him. I really believed in us, believed in our marriage, believed in the family that we were creating. And, uh, yeah. And so we were, we were married for, it was, ended up being just shy of our 10 year anniversary when everything fell apart. Um, but what I didn't really talk about, what didn't really come up in episode one and that I do want to talk about is, uh, just, uh, that, so when Carissa started being molested by Peter when she was seven years old and, uh, she did say something to me at that time. And I, I, I think if I recall correctly, um, there had been a couple of instances of her being molested and she had told me, um, and I had confronted Peter at that time. Um, we went for counseling, we went for therapy, uh, we reached out to, um, at the time it was, uh, Peter's brother-in-law and sister, uh, who were pastors. He was a, a pastor at that time, um, just for support and guidance and help and, you know, and, uh, stuff like that. And it ended up, um, being really, I think in the end made, made out to be just, um, it was an accident. It was a mistake. Um, it won't happen again, even, even with the, the counselor that we were seeing at the time. And, uh, which is incredibly wrong, but I, I also don't think, I think it was so hard for people to believe and to grasp, um, that this incident was anything more than a one-off. And it was, Peter had said that, oh, he had been, you know, he had been drinking. It wasn't, you know, this, he was completely stressed out. It was just due to stress. It was a total misunderstanding. He had thought it was me. I don't know how you confuse that, but, um, yeah, he had thought it was me and, um, be totally honest uh, with you guys. This is, um, really, it's difficult to talk about because, um, it's, um, just still that fear of, (sighs) 
fear of judgment. Um, yeah, fear of judgment. And um, even honestly, what's going on for me in my head right now is I just want to tell Sylvester to just cut all of this out, <laughs> just edit all of this out right now. Oh. Sorry, I, I, um, it's, um, it's hard talking about all, all of this. It's, it's, um, and I'm, I apologize that this is probably not as, uh, it's not a very polished podcast. <laughs> you know, I, I just recently, probably in the last year, year and a half or so really started talking. I mean, we, we obviously have very openly talked about what happened to Carissa and about the abuse and stuff like that. But I, I really kept it under wraps, um, that I knew about it the very first time because of how ashamed I was that I didn't just leave then. And I have, I had probably still do to a lot of regret that I didn't just leave the first time. And I really wanted to, I know like I've done a lot of processing and just thinking and reflecting and I just, I couldn't believe that it was happening to us. You know, I'm a Christian my husband was a Christian. Peter was a Christian. We were raising our kids in a Christian home. And I just, you know, my whole life, I just felt like I had been dealing with my this my entire life. And I had prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. I had felt like I had done every prayer and I just couldn't believe that it was still happening. And I, but it was. And so I know, you know, going, when I tried to address it as quick and the best way I knew how, like I, I remember telling Carissa that I believed her, you know, her little seven-year-old self. And I, I, I was pregnant uh, with my third child at the time, Elijah. And I, like, I was very pregnant. And I remember just holding Carissa in between my legs because I had been trying to put my shoes on because um, we were, Peter was in the truck and we were heading out for 
coffee and I, Carissa came and she told me and I held her in between my legs and over my big belly. And I remember just telling her that I believed her and that I was going to talk to daddy and that it was, it wasn't going to happen again. And just how brave and courageous she was for telling me and that I was going to take care of it. And that she did the right thing by telling me and I, you know, and then I remember going out to the truck and confronting Peter right away and he didn't try to deny it. He didn't. And then at that time, you know, we were meeting with um, his brother-in-law and his sister, like I mentioned, that were, he was a pastor. And so we told them, lined up the counseling right away. Christian counselor started seeing her like immediately. And so I just thought we were addressing everything and, and no one mentioned anything about calling the police. No one mentioned the possibility that there could be a real issue here. It it was all just, it was almost like it, how it was, was that we had caught it in time. Um, everything was going to be okay. Peter was going to get the help he needed for his stress. Um, and just to, you know, address it on his end and stuff like that. And, and so we went to counseling for months, uh, for this. And, and I really believed in my heart that everything, it, it, it was, it was going to be okay that there, this wasn't, this wasn't anything more than a one time horrible incident. But it wasn't that. And it did happen again. It happened a few times. Just like Carissa mentioned in, you know, the episode one. And and so that was... That was, that was my marriage and that's how it ended. That's why it ended. And the silence of that whole thing never, never should have happened. And you know, especially now for me where I know where I'm at today and and what what my family has gone through. And, and honestly, especially as Christians, I feel like we need to be talking about this stuff because it is happening. I, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy for the families out there that have never experienced this. I'm, 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 I'm glad for you if if you have never experienced this kind of trauma in your life but there are a lot of families that have and some of those families are in the church and and I know that because I I've even had some of those families reach out to me since we have disclosed what has what happened to us and so 
I just really... I, I wish I could go back and do it all again the first time. You know, but I didn't. And... But then when Carissa came to me again when she was 14... I I did do we did do something then. We did call the police. We did press charges. It was incredibly hard. It was incredibly painful. And it was incredibly messy. And so even back then, you know, even when I did come out when she was 14 um and not come out, come out, but I mean come out in the form of we called the police. We we alerted the proper authorities um, at that time. It still was such, it was such a mess. It was such a mess. Um, and then it was also during that time, you know, I started drinking again. Um, just little by little, you know, glass of wine every night after the kids were in bed, like around nine o'clock at night, just to take the edge off, you know, just to take the edge off the day. I didn't see anything wrong with that. Eventually, though, my drinking escalated. And I, you know, it got to the point where I was drinking a bottle of wine every day sometimes too towards the end and some of that too was just due to the again the shame and the silence staying silent and just being stuck in stuck in shame like quicksand shame where you're just sinking and sinking and sinking and sinking further and deeper into shame. You know, there, I remember trying to look for help, trying to look for support, trying to look for resources. And there, there was just nothing. I honestly, I even now I'm only talking about this because I know that we can do better I know that we can do better, but I feel like in some ways this was especially hard too because of the community that I belonged to, which was and is a, you know, a Christian community. I went to church and stuff like that, and I felt like we were outcasted and that we, we were an ugly stain on a white shirt, meaning the church. And it, we just weren't, I felt unwelcome. No one really knew what to do with us. You know, usually when people are in crisis, whether this is in the church or not, like just in our community, when people are in crisis, you know, something tragic happens, you know, or even during times of celebration, like we, you know, people will come over and they'll pray for you. They'll be with you through it. They'll, 
you know, maybe help to clean up your house. They'll bring you meals or whatever it is. They'll take the kids. They'll give you, like, depending on the situation, whatever it is, they're they're just there to kind of lend a hand and pitch in and do, you know, whatever they they can. And none, none of that happened for us in our church. I had, we had one pastor at that time. She was uh, an associate pastor, Pastor Marcia, and she was the only one that took the time to like to come alongside of us and try to help us get through it. And then it was, I think shortly after that, she ended up moving. And then I tried to keep going to church with the kids after that for weeks and, and months after that. But it just, eventually we, I just stopped. I just stopped. I just, I just couldn't handle how, how I felt. I know, I know a lot of this is, uh, it's heavy. It's heavy. I know it's heavy. I mean, these stories are out there. A dime a dozen. These stories, stories like this, stories worse than mine, are they're everywhere. They're everywhere. And even even for those that aren't, say, those stories that aren't as, as say, quote, bad as mine, but... There's still stories of pain, of loss, of, uh, you know, depression, anxiety, like just all, all, all of those kinds of stories. And I, I just think it's, it's so important for us to be telling these stories. Yeah. So I know, I know this is, this is a lot of heavy content today. Um, I, I also know too that I, clearly I did not get all of my story into this episode and I uh, was literally uh, just paused and was talking to Sylvester here in the studio and he just gave this, um, it's called Evergreen and I'm totally using, I'm totally using this and so we're actually even, I'm just going to call these episodes evergreen. And what that means, how Sylvester explained that to me is that it just means that it's, um, it's almost like chapters, um, of a person's story because there's no way for me to get all of my story into one episode clearly because we just tried that. Um, we're going to have evergreen episodes. And so we'll just be sharing pieces or chunks or chapters or seasons of my story, um, just over time. And so this was kind of the beginning of my story, I guess you could say. And so one of my evergreen chapters, seasons in my life. And it's really important to me to always uh, end with a message of hope and to 
hold out hope. Um, I, I believe in hope. I believe in the power of having hope. And, and so I just want to hold out that hope for you today. I know, like I said, I know that this was heavy. It's a, it, it is heavy. And maybe what you're going through right now is heavy. Maybe you're in a dark season. Maybe you're just coming out of a dark season. Maybe you're going into a dark season. Maybe something has just happened to you that has turned your whole life upside down. Wherever you are at in that journey, I just want to encourage you to hold on, to hold on to hope. Things, things can change. And a lot of times that just looks like small steps, even if that's just one thing, one positive thing that you do in today to move you forward. That could even just look like picking up the phone and making a phone call and, and sharing with someone what you're going through right now. Maybe that's all it is. Maybe it's calling your doctor because you you need to talk about where you're at. Maybe it's calling your counselor. Maybe maybe it's praying for the first time. I, I don't know. Maybe it's taking yourself out for a walk. Wh- whatever it is for you, Maybe it's picking up the phone and calling that helpline, calling the distress line. Maybe it's calling the AA line. Maybe it's choosing decide to decide to stop drinking. I don't, I don't know. But I, I do know with everything in me that we can recover. I do know that we can overcome hardship and trials and challenges and dark times. We can overcome abuse. We can overcome divorce. And so I just um, encourage you today to just really do one small thing, one small act of ordinary courage. And I, I'm so grateful um, to have you with me today uh, to be a part of this journey, to be a part of the Ordinary Courage podcast. And I, I really look forward to sharing some more evergreen moments with you. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can find the Ordinary Courage podcast there. And I hope you subscribe, pay it forward if you got anything out of this. And I will look forward to talking to you again. Thanks.